Welcome back this evening. I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians this year. And in the schedule that I set, it is necessary this month and today to cover two chapters. So chapter 8 was this morning and chapter 9 is this evening. They are related in content and both are rich in relevant instruction for us today. Please have your Bible ready in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to read down through verse 23 and then I promise to pick up that last paragraph near the end of our study. 1 Corinthians 9 starting at verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, 
so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." I'm going to pick up from what we studied this morning in chapter 8. And this is a rare, a rare deal that I set up tonight. We have abbreviated the song service because of the amount of material that I have to cover. It's very rare for me to ever do that. Maybe once a year I move a little beyond that 25 or 30 minute mark. But it's necessary to have all this compacted together. So let me talk with you for a few minutes about this important transitional link between chapter 8 and chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 8, Paul addresses the sensitive matter of love and care that we should have toward each other in matters of individual difference of conscience, individual differences of conscience. The issue as developed for the Corinthians in chapter 8 can be stated like this. You know that eating a certain kind of food is not a sin. Your brother has not arrived at that conclusion yet. And so the question becomes, how do you treat him? Well, in matters where no sin is involved, we are to be governed by our love for the brother with his scruples. A love that doesn't intrude or insist that we be imitated in all of our preferences and opinions. While it may be argued we have a right to eat the food in dispute, there's nothing wrong with it in our view Yet because of potential negative influence and perhaps in the presence of our brother, foregoing our liberty is the best course. What you do privately is one thing, but what you do in front of someone with a sensitive conscience, we need to guard against. Chapter 8 verse 13 states Paul's conclusion. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So, you have a right to do something, but you forego that right, if you can, in cases where you might lead someone to violate their conscience. You give up a liberty, if you can, out of consideration for what might have negative impact on another. That's what we studied in chapter 8 together this morning. And now we're introducing the next part of that 
discussion in chapter 9. And this is going to have emphasis on self-discipline. That same self-discipline, that same love and care for the weak is further illustrated and explained here in chapter 9. I don't think of this as chapter 8 is one subject, meat offered to idols and what you do about that, and chapter 9 is another subject, the support of preachers. There's a connection. That same self-discipline, that same love and care for the scrupulous brother emphasized in chapter 8 is further illustrated in chapter 9, and it's a very personal illustration for Paul. It's given by Paul about his personal choices to avoid offense and the self-discipline behind that choice. Paul begins in chapter 9 with four rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question implies its own answer. And in this case, the implied and obvious answer is affirmative all the way through. Am I an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work, my workmanship in the Lord? So you have four questions, and the answer to each one, of course, is yes. Paul was an apostle. He was free in every God-revealed sense. He had seen Jesus the Lord, and the Corinthians were living evidence of Paul's work in the Lord. So chapter 9 begins with four questions, each with an obvious affirmative reply. That's how the chapter begins. Now, in verses 2 through 6, Paul emphasizes that he's going to talk about things they knew. He says in verse 2, If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. And as he develops this from verse 2 down through verse 6, the emphasis is on these are things the Corinthians had been told. They knew about these things. Now, the point that you come to is Paul had liberties and rights. And some of those liberties and rights he did not exercise or claim. He had a right to eat and drink. Though he was not married, he had a right to marry, to take along a believing wife. And in verse 6, the right to refrain from working. Let's talk about that a minute. Working in this verse would mean having some job or secular occupation to provide your support. Paul says, I have a right to refrain from that and be involved in full-time work. Now, we know that Paul sometimes did work on the side. He was a tent maker to provide, to help provide his support as a preacher. But he had the right to refrain from working and to be fully supported. So far, from verse 1 to verse 6, Paul argues that he had certain rights and they they knew about this. He is not preparing to ask that all these rights be granted. He shows no intention of marrying or asking for money or anything like that. He's simply stating what is true about his rights and his liberties. Next... There are three illustrations, and all of them share a common point. It is right for those who labor in preaching to be supported. 
And here are the illustrations offered. The soldier, whoever goes to war at his own expense, is Paul's question. Well, I can remember when I was a soldier, the pay wasn't very good. But the principle is widely accepted. You pay soldiers for their labor. So Paul is illustrating his point regarding the support of preachers. Second, the farmer receives support from his crops. A question punctuates this. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? And then third, the one who tends his flock, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock. See, Paul is deliberately using illustrations taken from everyday life, things people would be familiar with. Just as soldiers are paid, and farmers who tend their flocks are paid, and uh, shepherds, Paul had the right to forbear working a regular job and take support for his work of preaching. At this point, he is just establishing that he had the right to be paid. He's not about to turn in a bill. He will make no demands of Corinth for financial support. At this point, he is simply establishing his right to be supported. Next, Paul says <coughs> that he's not saying these things just as a man. The principle was set forth by God. They were familiar with it in the Old Testament. And Paul deals with that from verse 8 down through verse 10. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Paul is making an argument here based on what they had read. And the argument contains great power. The Old Testament was well known by the Jews. And in that body of law, God even made provision for work animals to be fed, to be paid. There was a practice in those days that God told his people was forbidden. A farmer would put his beast of burden in the field and cover the mouth of the ox so it wouldn't be distracted by eating. God said, don't do that. Now, God was concerned about the abuse of animals, but that was not his main concern in giving the law and in having these things written. Paul says in giving that law, God was trying to teach us something, establishing a moral principle. Verse 10, does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. You don't want work animals to starve to death. <clears throat> nor should you want preachers to starve to death. Now, keep all this in the context here. Paul isn't complaining, and Warren isn't complaining. Paul isn't paving the way to ask for money. He has a point to be made, and we will see that point in a few more verses, and it connects back to what we studied today in chapter 8. Paul is establishing the right of preachers 
to be supported. Then he says in verse 11, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it a great thing if we reap material things from you? Now, this argues the matter based on what is reasonable and fair and appropriate. Paul took the time, expended the energy and sacrificed to deliver the gospel, to sow spiritual things. It is only right that he be taken care of from their material things. That's legitimate. It's a scriptural right to have the preacher be supported. Verse 12 argues on the basis of others who had been supported by the church at Corinth. Perhaps this was Timothy. The implication is others had received this consideration from Corinth. He says, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Now, observe carefully the rest of verse 12. We're getting very close to Paul's main point. I know some of this is tedious, but we're getting there. Nevertheless, we have not used this right. But endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Now we need to talk a little bit about this. The thrust of this section is Paul had a right to accept support for his work. But in certain situations where it might become a hindrance, he didn't assert that right. He didn't insist upon it. He didn't ask for or accept support. <clears throat> Not in all cases. For we know that he accepted support from Philippi. And in 2 Corinthians 11.8 he says he took wages from churches. His point is, he had the right to ask for and accept support, but in some situations he didn't assert what he had a right to assert. Now what's he doing? He's illustrating the principle that he taught back in chapter 8. Sometimes, though you have a legal and scriptural right to do something, it may be wise to not do it in the interest of the situation and the influence. Our use of our liberty may in some cases cause trouble for the conscience of others and in those cases when we see that <clears throat> we should be willing to forbear. Remember Paul had said this in chapter 8, verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul <coughs> is not saying that he's going to starve himself. He's saying that he had the right to eat whatever he wanted, yet he would give up the right to that full menu if it might offend a brother or cause a brother to stumble. The same principle is illustrated here in chapter 9. In the case of Paul having the right to be supported, but in some cases deciding that he would not assert that right. Verse 13 refers to the example of the priest who received a share of what was offered for their support. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Now, God wrote these provisions into his law for animals. 
and for the priest to be taken care of, to be supported. Here in verse 13, Paul brings this up as a matter of common knowledge. He says, do you not know? Verse 14 is a very direct statement about this matter. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Same thing Jesus said in Matthew 10, 9 and 10 and Luke 10, verse 7. If you're going to take care of animals, and if farmers are going to be taken care of, and shepherds are going to be taken care of, and soldiers are going to be paid... What are we going to do with preachers? Paul is establishing the right for preachers to be compensated. He said one time, Jesus did, the laborer is worthy of his hire. So Paul had a right to be supported in the work he did and to forbear working. But he didn't always use that right. In some cases, he could see it would be detrimental to assert that right. Verse 15 in the NIV but I have not used any of these rights. Am I not writing this in the hope? I'm sorry. And I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. Paul's not asking for money. He's arguing a case of foregoing a liberty. Based on this, everything in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, here is the picture I have formed in my mind. Paul took wages from other churches and was supported by Philippi. But in the case of Corinth, his judgment was to not use these rights that he has set forth in these verses. There was a competitive, hostile spirit in the church. There's evidence in 2 Corinthians that some of them were against Paul. So in Paul's judgment, he's going to forego a right. He's going to take no support for them based on his evaluation of the turmoil and the negativity that's in that church against his apostleship. Paul's commitment was to do what was right and best for the good of all and to the glory of God. If that meant giving up something in his menu or in his budget, he was willing and did not complain. He had a right to be supported, but he said, I've not used any of these things. This is self-discipline. It's humility. It's love that we ought to have, placing the good of others and the highest interest of the gospel at the very highest place in our choices. In verses 16 to 18, there's an awe-inspiring paragraph that provides us with a window into the heart of Paul. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in 
the gospel. This tells us Paul's purpose of heart was to preach the gospel, support or no support. Preaching the gospel was not something Paul had to do because there was no other job available. Preaching the gospel was not something he did to gain a following. He certainly didn't. It wasn't like a career where you're motivated by money, advancement, and reputation and power. He found his reward in preaching the gospel itself. He had to do this not out of compulsion, but from his purpose of heart to use whatever he had to the glory of God. To preach the gospel, support or no support. He considered himself condemned if he didn't do that. Now, it is typical for us to apply this in a limited way just to preachers. But in a very real sense, this should be the purpose of heart that lies within every Christian. I will do what is right and find my reward in doing what is right before God. I may have a right to be supported or applauded or recognized, but never mind all that. That's all secondary. My purpose of heart is to do what I'm able to do before God. Paul, as a preacher of the gospel, had a right to be supported. In some cases, he was supported. In other cases, he didn't want to be supported. But all of that was secondary to his main purpose of heart. I've got to preach the gospel. Now, whether you ever preach a public sermon or not, this should be your purpose. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to be devoted to the Lord. Whatever sacrifices come along, even if there are things I have a right to, I'm going to use self-discipline and forego liberties if necessary to serve the Lord fully. The next paragraph, I'm talking about verses 19 to 23, contains the heart of this passage as expressed in a paradox. Being free... And yet, a slave. Now how does that work? For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I've become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Here's the deal. Paul has argued that as an apostle and a gospel preacher, he had certain rights. One way to say that, he was free to have a wife, to take her with him, to forbear working and receive support from churches. But Paul wasn't possessive about his liberties and rights. He didn't hold his rights as a priority. He was concerned in terms of priority with preaching the gospel and reaching people pleasing God. He was free, but he made himself a slave to the needs and welfare of others for the sake of the gospel. 
He has already illustrated this back in chapter 8 where he said, I have a right to eat anything I want to eat, but I'll forbear certain menus for the sake of those I want to reach. You know, the whole spirit of this section is self-discipline unselfish regard that we should have for others even though others may be in our view weak in their knowledge our motive should be to love them and save them and help them even if that means we forego some right that we have you see how vital this is <coughs> let's look at this this way why would Paul give up something he had a right to verse 19 that I might win the more. Verse 20, that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21, that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22, that I might by all means save some. Verse 23, now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. We observe here the heart of the Apostle Paul. His motives are laid bare. And his motives were not centered on what he had a right to. His motives were directed to God on behalf of the lost. What a powerful lesson for us that should cause us to examine ourselves. Are we focused on our rights? We need to be focused on God, on the gospel and the lost. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What is that about? Self-discipline. The problem that led into this turmoil in Corinth was an absence of self-discipline. We studied this morning in chapter 8, the first verse, where people were asserting their knowledge in a puffed-up way and wounding the conscience of the weak. Chapter 9 is Paul's example of self-discipline. All of this in these chapters are connected, presenting to us this theme of self-discipline. Do you know that here in this final paragraph, Paul takes his illustrative material from the athletic events of the time. You may know that the Olympic Games came from this part of the world, from Athens and Corinth. Running events were popular and even wrestling and boxing became a sport or a game. So like Jesus, Paul takes his illustrative material from the familiar events of the day. And in this case, it's about the self discipline of an athlete the self-discipline of an athlete run in such a way 
Now, not everything about running a race applies. Not everything about sports and competition applies. But the self-discipline is what is primary here. This appears very well in Philip's translation. You ought to run with your minds fixed on winning the prize. The competitive element we see in athletics, beating others, has no place in this illustration. He's talking about self-discipline. When you witness a good runner, what do you see? You see the result of self-discipline. The result of training. You see undistracted effort. And you see it arrive at a good destination for the athlete. Self-discipline. Paul said, I discipline my body. Well, I've covered a lot of material in 1 Corinthians 9. Let me summarize these two chapters and then challenge us before we go home. I think discipline becomes the key word to summarize chapter 8 and chapter 9. Discipline, when it comes to what I consider to be my right and my liberties, then discipline in the use of my mind and body, self-control, the very thing that Darrell read to us about from Proverbs is active here in these Two chapters. That's the message and the challenge for us from these two related chapters in the first Corinthian letter. Let us be standing together as we sing.